All right, well, it's good to see you all this morning. It's good to hear your voices singing, confessing faith together. It's good to see your faces. It's really a joy uh, every Sunday to to be before you. Um, uh, This morning I was uh, thinking, I was with the RMC 101 class this morning, people thinking about membership and I was considering uh, one one of the, the the I think Matt would agree with this, but one of the great joys of being a pastor to you uh, and uh, is simply the opportunity to sit with people that are thinking about joining the church and uh, and we we have this process. Many of you know about this. Many of you have done this. But before somebody stands before you and takes vows to join the church, we have what's called the membership interview, and uh, that. That that really that title doesn't really capture the joy of that <laughs> that meeting. Uh, it sounds like a test, but really what it is is a chance for a couple of elders to sit with people and hear the story of how God has been working in in your life, and uh, and for us to get to know each other. Um, and it's always a lot of fun. And w- when I think about that, what often stands out to me is that very rarely do I hear stories of epiphanies of faith. Those certainly exist, uh, where God moves dramatically in somebody's life and calls them to faith in Jesus Christ. Those stories do exist, uh, and there are probably some of those in this room. But what I hear most often from people are stories about God's constancy or his, his long faithfulness to somebody over the course of their life, where, uh, where he uh, calls them to faith, and then builds them in faith over time. And I say that because the story of Peter and his relationship with Jesus is really no different. Yes, Peter has witnessed dramatic things, and we'll talk about those in a minute. But really the story of Peter and his life with Jesus is a story of Jesus slowly over time revealing himself to Peter and Peter continuing to grow in his understanding of who Jesus is. And it it all kind of leads up to this climactic moment we're about to read about, where Peter famously confesses out loud who he believes Jesus really is. So that's what we're looking at this morning, thinking about that confession itself and what it might mean for us. I'll read Mark chapter 8, verse 27, starting in verse 27, and I'm going to go all the way through verse 10 in chapter 9. Hear the word of the Lord. And Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist, and others say Elijah, and others one of the prophets, And he asked them, but who do you say that I am? And Peter answered him, you are the Christ. And he strictly charged them to tell no one about him. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed. And after three days rise again. And he said this plainly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but but on the things of man. And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, 
Let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and yet forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. And he said to them, Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them, and his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. And there appeared to them Elijah with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. And Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. For we do not know, oh, for he did not know what to say, for they were terrified. And a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. And suddenly, looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them but Jesus only. And as they were coming down the mountain, he charged them to tell no one what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. So they kept the matter to themselves, questioning what this rising from the dead might mean. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let me pray. O Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we pray that you would be at work amongst us this morning over these next few moments. Feed us with your word. Help us to trust you. Uh, demonstrate to us what it means for us to follow you, Lord Jesus. And would you help me, uh, your servant, to love these people well and to honor you with every word I say. Let this be about your glory, our Lord Jesus. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. So we, we can't be too precise when we try and time out these stories. Um, but we think that we're about two years into Peter's time with Jesus. So two years in, Peter's been hanging with Jesus. We're probably somewhere between six and 12 months away from when Jesus goes to the cross. And I think it's worth asking the question, what are the things that Peter has seen, borne witness to, over the course of his time with Jesus before he becomes the first human to publicly confess that he thinks Jesus is the Christ? What has he seen? Well, of course... Walking around with Jesus, he's seen Jesus demonstrate tremendous amounts of power, supernatural power. It's really interesting that through Mark, in the book of Mark, most of Jesus' miracles seem to be healing miracles. Lots of healings he's done. Uh, Every part of the body has been healed by Jesus in some way. Uh, He's healed people who couldn't walk. He's healed people that couldn't use their hands. He's healed people that couldn't see, couldn't hear. He's healed lepers who were ostracized by the community. He's healed people that were like right next to him. He's healed people that were far away. It didn't seem to matter. There was nothing that Jesus couldn't heal. There's no part of the human body that Jesus couldn't bring back to life. He's also seen Jesus exercise his power to feed people. 
thousands of people, crowds of people who were hungry, who were hanging on his every word, uh, needing in desperate need of food, can't provide for themselves, and Jesus somehow by his power gave them bread to eat. Last week, Matt preached about how Jesus walked on water, and he talked about how Jesus, when he walked on water, he was walking over chaos of the world. Water represented uh, a lot of unknown danger and chaos to people. The sea represented that. And not only was he on the sea, but he was on the sea in the midst of a life-threatening storm. And here's Jesus just showing his superiority over all those things, just walking along. And so Jesus is ex- Jesus, Peter has witnessed Jesus display all kinds of power, but all of that came alongside teaching that proclaimed that the kingdom of God had, had arrived with the coming of Jesus. Now, some of us are really familiar with all of these stories. Uh, some of us are not. But if you grew up in the church and you've heard these stories told uh, many times, I think there's a risk that we can sometimes sanitize the drama out of how incredible these stories are. But just put yourself in Peter's shoes for a minute. Think about what it would have been like to stand next to Jesus and watch somebody who hasn't been able to use their legs stand up for the first time in years or maybe the first time ever. What would it have been like to see the tears roll down that man's face and to see that person look Jesus, his healer, in the face? What would that have what would that have been like? Or what would it have been like to stand next to Jesus as he watches hungry people come back to life because Jesus gave them bread? Or what would it have been like to be there when you see a crowd full of cynical, hardened, disenfranchised, marginalized people who had lost faith in the religious establishment be moved with hope again because of the words that were coming out of Jesus' mouth. What would it have been like to be there? I actually don't think it's really hard to be fascinated with Jesus. A lot of people were fascinated with Jesus. But what we see in Peter is that what began as a fascination with who this man is had formed over time into a conviction about who he believed him to be. When Peter says in verse 29, you are the Christ, he was offering a conviction of the soul that he had arrived at about who this man was. But here's the thing about convictions. They can cut both ways. Every conviction, depending on how strongly we hold to it, can be reassuring to us. It can help us build a framework for how we understand the world and our place in it. But convictions can also be dangerous. Because how strongly we hold to them, they also have the power to lead us into unknown places that can be scary at times. And so that's what I want to talk to you about this morning is the, the, the conviction that Peter offers, the setting that it came in. Talk about the conviction itself. I also want to talk about where this conviction will lead. And then finally, I want to talk about why this conviction is good. The conviction, where it leads, why it's good. 
It's really interesting to see the setting that, uh, that, that, uh, that's created here by which, uh, from which Peter offers this confession that he believes Jesus is the Christ. Matthew, Mark, and Luke all note that Peter's famous confession come in, the, in a town called Caesarea Philippi. Now that's fascinating. The town of Caesarea Philippi, its original name was the name Panaeus, P-A-N-E-E-A-S, if you're interested in looking it up. But it's a, uh, a, the false god named Pan, which had its roots in the, the worship of Baal. You can be familiar with that from Old Testament literature. But in the city of Panaeus, it still was there at the time when it was named Caesarea Philippi, as a limestone cave that had a grotto in it where Syrian Greeks could come and, and offer worship to the god Pan. It actually got renamed to Caesarea Philippi by a man named Philip the Tetrarch. He was one of Herod the Great's sons. He was a ruler, renamed the city for himself. How, you know, how amazing is that? Isn't that a dream that you all have for yourselves, is that one day you might be in a place where you could rename, I will call my house, I don't know. So, but he renamed, he renamed Caesarea Philippi also in honoring Augustus Caesar. So Caesarea Philippi. And in Caesarea Philippi was a temple where other people could make pilgrimages to this place and offer worship of the emperor. And so here's the point I want you to see is that the setting where Peter makes this strong confession comes in a place that would have been notorious for worshiping other gods. And it's also in the midst about, what, uh, about who this man Jesus was. A couple of them are mentioned here in the text. Jesus asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? And they respond, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, others say one of the prophets. These are just some of the things they hear people speculating about trying to make sense uh, about who Jesus is. And we know it can't be John the Baptist. We know this because John the Baptist actually baptized Jesus at the beginning of Mark. It's two different people. In fact, John the Baptist was killed by Herod earlier in the story. So he, it can't be. That, that idea is a no-go. Elijah is really interesting, though. It was a common widespread belief amongst Jewish people that Elijah, who, who actually never died, he was swept up into heaven, uh, that they thought that he might appear on the earth uh, shortly before the end of days. Uh, so that's an idea. Maybe he's Elijah is what they were thinking. But what's the point of this passage? The point of this passage is that we have a mixture of perspectives that are all speculating about who Jesus is, but none of which quite grasp who he is. And I just don't think it's a mistake that this is the environment that the conviction of Jesus Christ the promised Messiah sent from God to redeem his people comes from Peter in the midst of a city with muddled views about God amongst the people who were all confused about who Jesus is. And then Luke records that Jesus says to Peter, it's on that confession I will build my church. What I want you to see here is that this is the environment where faith perseveres. That it's an understanding. It's a conviction of the soul. A belief that sits deep in your gut about who Jesus is over and against all the other competing ideas that are around you. 
And so as God's people who draw together in fellowship, worshiping together on a church built on the same confession, we join our voices with Peter's in this common conviction about who Jesus is. And this is important because if we say this, if we say that Jesus Christ, Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, then nothing else can be. If we say that Jesus is our God, then that, that one of the things that mean, means is that money is not our God. If we, if we believe that Jesus is our God, then, then we are saying that the comfort of our lives are actually not our God. Uh, my reputation is not my God. Jesus is. Uh, my possessions are not my God. My politics are not my God. My job is not my God. My accomplishments, my resume, oh, that's a tough one for me. That is not my God. Make no mistake, just like in Caesarea Philippi, we are surrounded by all kinds of things that are calling out for us, asking us to worship them. And none of those things are inherently bad in themselves. But let me tell you, they make terrible gods. They will ask and ask and ask and ask and will never be able to deliver what Jesus delivers for his people. When we say Jesus is the Christ, what we're saying is that he has done everything necessary to secure you to himself. And we're saying that all of our security, our future, our peace was won for us by Jesus. And if this is true, let me tell you, we really need it to be true. Because Jesus then begins talking about where he is going and where we're going if we're to follow him. Where does this conviction about who Jesus is lead? Well, Jesus starts talking about where he's going and this is the first of three times that Jesus makes a prediction about how he'll go to the cross with and I think what he's doing here is he's preparing those who are following him for what they will witness when they go to Jerusalem together and what will they witness they'll witness uh, uh, I got four things first the, the Christ will suffer many things Uh, He will be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes. It's a religious establishment. Uh, He will be killed. And then after three days, he will rise again. And I love this part. In verse 31, it says, and he said this plainly. (laughs) Like, like Jesus wasn't telling parables. Uh, Often disciples have to circle around and say, what did you mean when you said that? No, in this case, he said, it says he... This plainly, and you can see how this plan goes over for the disciples in Peter's response, right? Uh, The the story says that Peter took Jesus, just imagine this, Peter took Jesus aside and began to rebuke him. Peter's the only disciple that ever said no to Jesus. Uh, Why? Because his version of what the Christ came to do doesn't square with this plan that Jesus laid out for where he was going. Even while he confesses what he believes about Jesus to be true, he still has Jesus in his own box as far as what Jesus' purpose amongst them will be. He had this vision in mind of the problems that they will suffer that Jesus will fix in this life. And let me tell you, the problems around them were numerous. I mean, there, there, there was the problem of the Romans, 
that were governing them and taxing them into oblivion. There was the problem of Jewish fragmentation. There was a problem of weak leadership, disenchantment with religious leaders. I mean, we could go on and on of all the problems that the people uh, were dealing with at that time, and none of them would have been fixed by Jesus' death. But what Peter doesn't understand is that Jesus has different priorities that extend far beyond this life. That there is a greater problem that Jesus came to attend to. That he came to remove the obstacle that exists, that sits between his people and God, the problem of sin. That, that he must go to the cross in order to offer the atoning sacrifice that will deal fully and finally with the problem of our sin. And this is why Peter, Jesus rebukes Peter right back. Because Jesus, Peter's visions for the Christ were just too small. You don't have the things of God in mind. You're not operating with the concerns of God. You are only operating with the concerns of man. Peter wants Jesus to fix Israel, and Jesus came to redeem people from their sins. And he adds that if you seek to follow me, this will be your experience too. Not only am I calling you to embrace this for me, But I'm actually calling you to embrace this for you. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. That's the way of following Jesus that he lays out. For whoever would save his life will lose it. And whoever would, would lose his life for my sake or the gospels will save it. He's off, this is the paradoxical way of following Christ. He says, whoever would save his life, that means living a life of exclusive like self-orientation. Living only to make your life better. Uh, will actually lose their lives. And whoever loses his life, uh, for my sake, means up giving up this self-centered orientation for the sake of Jesus and the gospel will save it. He's saying that the avenues of suffering are actually the roadmap of peace. Uh, the, the way of the cross in, in, is actually the way of peace. Uh, the way of grace. We actually get what we desire by giving up what we desire now. The only way this can make sense is if we can consider our lives beyond the here and now. That's the only way this can make sense at all. That, that, that when Jesus talks about saving your life, he's, he's pointing his disciples and you and me to an everlasting communion with God that can't be violated by suffering or even death. That's the promise. And that's a heck of a promise. The unimpeachable, everlasting communion with God that cannot be violated by the worst things we face in this life. But that's not the only promise. There are two promises here. There's also the promise of suffering. And we need to be honest about that. But here's what I want you to see is that because of Jesus, the promise of suffering 
never comes without the promise of salvation. Suffering is not chaos. As long as it reminds us of the promises that we cling to. And there are all kinds of stories that we will see these disciples endure after Jesus' death where they will need to remember that this is true. They will suffer. They will be falsely imprisoned. They will be falsely accused publicly. And most of them will even die for the sake of Jesus' name and the gospel. And they will need to remember these words that Jesus said. And sometimes I wonder, if they had a picture of where life would Christ would take them, would they think it was good? Like, if you knew what Jesus was up to, and how he would use you, and where you would take, where he would take you, would you still be up for following him? Is this conviction about who Jesus is good? For the path of suffering to be palatable, the promise of salvation has to be weighty. It's got to matter to us. And that means that the person offering these promises actually has to be capable of delivering them. Jesus has to be great in our eyes. And you know what? I think that's actually the very question Jesus was beginning to attend to in chapter 9, verse 1, when he says, There are some standing here with me who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God coming in his power. I think he's saying that, hey, these promises, let me put a stamp on why you can rely on them. And there are a lot of, uh, there are a lot of theories about what Jesus was actually talking about when he predicted, you know, some of you will see the kingdom of God coming with power. But I think the most sensible explanation is that Jesus is actually talking about this very next scene that we see here. Because we see him go up a mountain with some of them, three, Peter, James, and John, and they see the glory of the kingdom of God coming in power with Jesus himself. What they realize when they see Jesus transfigured is nothing less than the presence of God. It says Jesus' face became radiant and white as no one, nothing on earth could bleach them. It was like this unnatural, uh, supernatural white. Uh, there's a story once ab- about um, Moses, how he would go and visit with God and uh, then he would come down the mountain and the people would say, your, your face is glowing. And in that, in that story, Moses was like the moon to the sun's light. He was reflecting the glory of God and his face was shining. But what we actually see here is, in Jesus is, is that it's his true radiance of divine glory that's coming out from his inner being. Jesus isn't reflecting anything. He's the sun. They're actually seeing Jesus as he truly is. Everything about this amazing scene is meant to show that when you're in the company of Jesus, you're in the company of God himself. And then Peter's response, it just seems hilarious. It's good that we're here right now. (laughs) I got an idea. 
let's build three tents, okay? One for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. (laughs) And, And even the text says they didn't know what to say, so Peter started talking. Of course he did. Like, that's Peter's role, is to speak when he's nervous. And some people think he was trying to do, you know, um, he was trying to actually preserve this moment. Like, he's like, okay, I have everything I want right now. Jesus in his glory and Moses and Elijah, this is amazing. I'm going to build tents and try and make this moment last forever. Other people think that he was actually terrified. Uh, and that the being or seeing God in his glory is a very scary thing. And he was trying to build tents to get them in the tent so he could protect himself. I tend to think that last theory makes a lot of sense. Because it said he was terrified. For he didn't know what to say. The story says that he was terrified of what? The supernatural divine power that was revealed in those moments was simply unrivaled. What's Peter saying? Or what's Jesus saying? He's saying these, even in the midst of suffering, these promises for you are safe and good. And Jesus is capable of delivering even in difficulty. And then suddenly it was over. They saw Jesus as he truly is, and then the moment was over. And it was just the four of them standing on top of the mountain. And they're going down, and Jesus said, don't say anything to anyone. I love that. It's all throughout Mark. Jesus is always saying, don't talk about this. (laughs) Don't say anything to anyone until the Son of Man has risen from the dead. And I love this last verse. It says, they kept the matter to themselves, questioning among themselves what this rising from the dead might mean. And you may remember that this isn't the first time Jesus has talked about rising from the dead. In fact, every time Jesus talks about his death, he also begins talking about his resurrection. He, he said it earlier that, the, you know, after he's killed, he will be raised from the dead. And, but they, they don't have any idea what he's th- talking about. They're questioning for themselves. There was the widespread understanding of resurrection amongst Jewish people was that there would be a resurrection, a general resurrection at the end of days. You see this in several different Old Testament texts. It's referenced in the Psalms. It kind of makes sense if you know the story of the woman at the well when she talks about, the, you know, she knows there will be a resurrection. But listen, nobody rose from the dead three days after dying. That didn't happen. The whole idea of it blew their minds. What Jesus was doing was he was just dropping breadcrumbs along the way. And he was telling them that even as they endure the heartbreak of watching Jesus suffer and die, that that won't be the end of the story. Resurrection hope gets to have the last word. And if that's true, it vindicates Peter's conviction. And it vindicates your conviction. His resurrection tells you that your conviction of the soul about who Jesus is, is good. Uh, By way of closing, uh, 
I couldn't stop thinking about an interview Tim Keller did. I think it was a year ago. It might have been a year and a half ago. It was during the pandemic. Uh, he had been, it wasn't long after he had been diagnosed with stage four pancreatic cancer, which, you know, was a very hard diagnosis. And so he was really well acquainted with suffering. He's, you know, beloved pastor to many of us and uh, for, for many of us, uh, intellectual um, and he was doing this interview to a bunch of uh, people in the middle of the, all the fear of the pandemic. Um, and Russell Moore asked him uh, what he would say to Christians who are nervous about the future. Um, and this is what he said. He said he and his wife have been talking about this. His wife, Kathy, had been talking about this a lot lately. Uh, dealing with his own diagnosis and all the fear that, um, that comes along with just you know, being alive. And and this is what he said. He said, if Jesus Christ is raised from the dead, if Jesus Christ is raised from the dead, if he really got up, was seen by people, talked to them, then you know what? Everything is going to be okay. Sometimes the short life we have here continues to overwhelm me, he said. And he said he still cries a lot. There's room for grief and worry and fear and tears. But then you must say to yourself, if Jesus Christ was raised from the dead, this really is all going to be okay one day. And so my hope for you this morning is not just that you can join Peter's conviction and look at Jesus and say he is the Christ. That's really the beginning What I want you to do is to be able to look also at his glory and his power and his atoning sacrifice on the cross and his resurrection that he's alive right now and put it all together. And when you do, you'll find an unimpeachable hope. And you'll be able to say to yourself and to those around you that because Jesus Christ is resurrected from the dead, then I know we're going to be okay. That would be a truly wonderful conviction. Amen. Let me pray. Oh, Lord Jesus, what a wonder that you're alive, that you're with us, that you gave yourself to us and for us. Would you stir our hearts with wonder and help us to trust? Thank you for your love. Would you please continue to tell us the story of these truths over and over and over again. Hold us in hope, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen.